Now, our scripture reading for today is Psalm 85, verses 1 through 13. This is found in page 493 in the Pew Bible. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Victoria. Good morning. My name's Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and really delighted that you're here this morning. Thanks for uh, coming out today and um, being with us, especially if you're newer uh, to Christ's community, if you're newer to church in general. Uh, I know searching for a church, exploring a church, coming to church for the first time isn't always the easiest thing to do. It's probably one of the harder things we do. So thanks for coming this morning, and we're really glad that you're here. Hopefully you felt uh, warmly welcomed and comfortable in this place uh, already. And before we look at Psalm 85, this passage that uh, we just heard read for us a moment ago, I want to pray and ask that God would help us to hear his voice this morning, because it's from him that we need to hear. So let's do that. Father in heaven, I pray that you would allow us this morning to hear your word. You tell us in Psalm 19 that you're speaking in creation, that day to day and night to night, all of the creation pours forth speech and that you speak to us supremely in your word, in your law, the Bible. So often I am too distracted, too busy, too interrupted to hear. So I pray now this morning as we look at Psalm 85 that you, by your spirit, would cut through all of that distraction and allow us to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Thanksgiving morning, I ran to hy V for two things on Thanksgiving morning. One, uh, a turkey baster. We did not have a turkey baster. I was in charge of the turkey, and you can't have Thanksgiving without a well-basted turkey. And the other thing I got on Thanksgiving morning at Hy-Vee was a newspaper. We don't get the newspaper at our house, uh, but I wanted it because what is Thanksgiving without the afternoon spent looking at ads of things that you want rather than being thankful? So I needed the Black Friday ads. Uh, so I spent the afternoon of Thanksgiving looking for all the things I don't have that I, I want to try to go out and buy. And with that Black Friday day, um, it's kind of the beginning of the holiday season. And we, we talk about Christmas time as a time, a season of peace. But, but so often, right, in the midst of the shopping and the parties and the guests and the family and, and all of that, things can begin to feel a little bit chaotic, hectic, less than peaceful. I mean, I mean who among us this morning 
hasn't at one point or another during the holiday season resonated with the Grinch. When he says that there's one thing I hate, the noise, the noise, the noise. And we complain about the noise and the busyness of the holiday. But deep down, I don't know that we really want it to be quiet. We, we say that we want rest and quiet and solitude, but in the rare moments, this is true for me at least, in the rare moments when I get those things, when they come unexpectedly in the car by myself or on a plane or late at night after the kids have gone to bed, and turn on the radio or the TV or look at my phone. But we can't stand the silence. Uh, not because it's, it's too loud out there, but because it's too loud in here. The noisy, cavernous, empty space inside of our own hearts, minds, souls too often feels like too much to bear. And so rather than, than feel our feelings or rather than reflect on what's going on inside of us, we distract ourselves. And some of you have probably already reached for your phones right now. This is already getting a little bit too real. But, but is distraction really the answer? Is it really the best that we can hope for when those feelings begin to well up within us? Comedian Louis C.K. went on The Conan Show a couple of years ago and talked about why he doesn't want his kids to have cell phones. And Louis C.K. ends, he concludes by pointing out that, that because we're unable to deal with the noise, with the sadness that's inside of us, that we, we never really end up feeling completely happy or completely sad. He says, you just kind of feel satisfied with your products and then you die. And Sherry Turkle, uh, she's a professor at MIT, in her book, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talking to Digital Age, this is an immensely important book, and I'd encourage everyone to, to read it. She picks up on what Louis C.K. is talking about. She writes this. She says, we slip into thinking that always being connected is going to make us less lonely, but we are at risk because it is actually the reverse if we are unable to be alone, we will be more lonely. If we are unable to be alone, we will be more lonely. And if we don't teach our children to be alone, they will only know how to be lonely. See, what we need is not distraction. What we need is peace. And that peace, it ultimately only comes from one place, and that is God's voice. Only God can speak peace to the chaos that's inside of us. We don't, we don't know how to be alone, and when we don't know how to be alone, we can't hear God's voice. But this problem of struggling to hear God's voice, it isn't new. I'm sure we have a lot more technological ways to distract ourselves now, but the problem of hearing God's voice speaking peace, it isn't new. Which is why in this ancient psalm this morning, we hear the psalmist cry, let me hear what the Lord God will speak. 
For the past 3,000 years, people have prayed the prayers and sung the songs of the Psalms. They are songs that sustain us, songs of grief and hope, songs of loneliness, despair and desperation, songs of deliverance and trust and joy. They're all here in the Psalms, all that range of emotion. And so when you read, pray, sing the Psalms together or alone, you are joining with men and women, millions of them, across thousands of years and hundreds of languages who have wept over these words, rejoiced over these words, been comforted by these words, these songs that sustain us. And this morning as we look at Psalm 85, we're going to see that the problem of listening to God's voice, it starts inside of us and that the solution comes from outside of us. The, the problem of hearing God's voice, it's, it's one that's inside of us. And that the solution comes from outside of us. And when we think about the places that are most lacking peace, the places that are the most chaotic, the images, the places that come to mind are most likely places like Syria or neighborhoods that are torn apart by violence or the political realm or racial tension and conflict. You know, but it turns out that the most chaotic place in the planet is inside of us. There's good reason to think that this psalm was written after the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon. And if you've been with us uh, over the fall, you know we spent some time in the book of Daniel. And, and Daniel was one of these Jewish people who had been taken from his home in Judah and was exiled in Babylon. Spent nearly his entire life there. And this psalm begins in verse 1 with the psalmist calling to mind what God has done in the past, his goodness, his faithfulness. Verse 1, he says, Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. And then he continues in verse 4, asking God to do that again. He says, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? That's what indignation means. It's kind of an anger. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. See, notice where the psalmist's focus is here. It's not on the external circumstances primarily of the captivity or exile or whatever he's going through. It's on something internal, this relationship that he has with God that's in this moment has been marked with indignation and anger. There's something wrong inside of us. The most chaotic place on the planet is inside. The the problem of hearing God's voice is, is not that there's so much noise outside of us, it's that there's so much noise inside of us. And the idea of peace in the Bible, it's a, it's a rich concept. It's, it's multifaceted. And it's captured by this Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is it's first and foremost a relational concept. It, it does speak to comprehensive welfare and flourishing and harmony and joy in the world, but it is first about a relationship. Just think about your home growing up. Or, or your home now, your family that you live with now. 
And think about the good times that you had with your family. I would guess if you really thought back about those good times, that it was because the relationships in your family were good. The people were at peace with one another. Because you, you see, you can go through incredible hardship in your life, but if your relationships with your friends, with your, your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, if those relationships are good, you can bear up all kinds of really difficult external circumstances. But even the best of external material circumstances are miserable if your relationships are a mess. And this is why you can be a wealthy celebrity with the very best of, of stuff and the nicest home and, and have a marriage that's falling apart and be completely unhappy. It's not the external circumstances that typically guarantee a happiness. It's, it's a relational reality. The most chaotic place on the planet is inside of us. This is always where it starts. It, and sin starts inside. And it's a breach of relationships. Sometimes when we think about sin, we hear this language of sin, we, we think about um, breaking a rule or a law, doing something bad. And it, it's true. The Bible does talk about sin as, as law-breaking, uses that language. But sin is always, first and foremost, a breach of a relationship. When Adam and Eve, the, the first human, sinned and turned away from God, it was a problem inside of them before they ate the fruit, disobeying God. In the moments before they took the bite, they had already rejected God. They rejected relationship with Him. They chose to listen to the voice of the serpent rather than to the voice of the one who speaks peace. And so now, today, every one of us has that empty, forever empty place inside of us. That noisy, that restlessness, that inner murmur of self-reproach that haunts us. We've turned away from God. We believe the lie that He doesn't love us, that, that He doesn't want our best. And so we turn inward on ourselves, um, we hate one another, and we send shrapnel flying to one another's lives. We are hurt by others, and we hurt others. And all of that hurt and injury and hate and abuse, it all brings God's right and just judgment, anger, and wrath on us. Yes, as, as individual peoples and, and as a whole of the human race. So this relationship with God that was once characterized by this amazing word, peace, shalom, it's now marked by indignation, anger, wrath. And we know intuitively, somehow we sense that we, what we need to deal with that empty forever empty has to come from outside of us. And so we look, we, we search we thirst. We look to relationships to fill it, maybe to drugs or to alcohol or family or our work or nature, the beauty of creation, something, anything to fill that void. 
and we're right in our intuition that it has to come from outside of ourselves. What we are looking for does come from outside of us, but it does not come from outside of us in creation, but from outside of us in a restored relationship with the Creator. Ultimately, what we're looking for doesn't come from inside. What we are looking for comes from outside of us. And at the heart of this lack of peace is the destroyed relationship with the one who made you and desperately loves you. You see, even though it was us who wrecked the relationship and rejected him, it's he who pursues us and offers forgiveness, removing the guilt that satisfies his wrath and restores shalom. If you look at verses 2 and 3 in Psalm 85, we see this so clearly. The psalmist says, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Do you hear the the key words in those verses that God forgave, He covered, He withdrew all His wrath, turned away all of His anger. You know, sometimes we struggle with the concept of, of God being wrathful or being described as having hot anger. But without the concept of God's wrath, we have two massive problems. The, the first one has to deal with the fact that God's wrath means that He really is good. The fact that God has wrath means that He really is good. Pastor and theologian John Stott defines God's wrath this way. He says, the wrath of God is His steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. That's what the wrath of God is. It's this uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. You see, because God is truly good, beautiful and holy. He is uncompromisingly opposed to evil, however big or small or wherever it is. He, he has to be if he's going to be good. And therefore, if we try to sweep God's wrath under the rug, we may make him seem at the first somehow less offensive. But we've also simultaneously diminished his goodness and his beauty and his glory and his holiness in the process. The second problem that arises if we try to minimize this idea that's so clear throughout the, big, the scriptures of God's wrath and his anger toward evil in the world is a problem with the cross. You see, why does Jesus have to die such a brutal death on the cross? Historically, Christians have believed that Jesus' death on the cross was the moment in which God's holy and just wrath against sin was satisfied, that on the cross, Jesus took our sin on him and God judged him instead of us. But if God has no wrath, then why does Jesus have to die? simply to, to show us how much He loves us or how much He'd be willing to give up for us? This is the answer that often comes back from those who would deny 
God's wrath, but it, it doesn't ultimately seem compelling to me. Because dying for someone just to show them that you love them is, is only meaningful, only makes sense if there is some real threat. And, and I've used this illustration lots of times before, but if I'm walking along Warnell Road with Rachel, my wife, and, and I see a bus coming and I say to her, let me show you how much I love you. And I throw myself in front of the bus. I doubt that that would seem particularly loving to her. It's horrifying, right? But if we change the scenario, I'm walking down Royal Road, she trips and falls into the road as an oncoming bus approaches. I, I shove her out of the way, and in the process, I'm struck by the bus instead. That is indeed a, a great act of love and, and sacrifice. Without that, the wrath, the cross, becomes a, a just sort of a senseless moment of suffering. God's wrath is real because he is good. And his wrath is removed at the highest cost to himself because he is love. In love, he offers Jesus. Jesus offers himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that he can forgive our sin and cover our iniquity. And in doing so, remove wrath. His anger is turned away and peace and shalom, they're restored. You see, the only way that that empty, forever empty, that is deep inside each and every one of us is quieted is for us to hear the voice of the one who loved us enough to run after us even when we rejected and hated him and wanted nothing to do with him. To hear the voice of him who gave himself up for us, who loves us, who wants to spend the balance of everlasting time with us, to hear the voice that speaks peace to us. That and only that can calm the chaos within in Jesus, God has spoken peace to his people. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time in the Advent season. Advent means coming, arrival. We're remembering Jesus' first coming, his first arrival, and, and anticipating his second. God has spoken peace to his people. This is how the prophet Zephaniah puts it. It's probably been a while since you've heard someone quote the prophet Zephaniah. It's been a long time since I've quoted the prophet Zephaniah. This is what he says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Have you ever thought about God relating to you in that way, that he rejoices over you with gladness? He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. That noise, the chaos inside, it's quieted by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is an incredibly beautiful, because it is true, verse. This, because of Jesus' sacrifices, how God thinks of you. He loves you. He is in our midst. He rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets us. He quiets us by his love.
the God of the universe who made you and loves you and gave himself for you is speaking peace to you. The question is, are we listening? Are we listening? You see, far too often we settle to merely distract ourselves from the empty, forever empty, rather than to listen to the emptiness and then hear the voice that stills the raging chaos inside. So how do we listen? How do we listen to the voice that speaks peace? There's three things here this morning. First, listening means silencing. If we're going to hear the voice of peace, we have to silence the distractions around us enough to actually hear our own hearts and minds and then to hear God's voice speaking peace over us. Because God doesn't shout peace. He speaks it. Far too often I drown out that voice with a million other things. Verse 8, let me hear, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Let me hear it. Create margin in your life. Allow for a little silence. But we hate the silence, don't we? It reminds me of a 21 Pilot song, Car Radio. It's about when someone stole his radio out of his car and he was forced to drive around in silence. It hurts because I I feel it. Twice in my life during Lent, I've given up listening to the radio in my car. (laughs) And both times I felt the reality that sometimes the quiet, the silence is violent. You see, we live in what C.S. Lewis scholar Alan Jacobs calls an ecosystem of interruption. In this ecosystem, it keeps us from feeling, from knowing that yawning depth and wild chaos in our own hearts. Just listen to what Jacobs writes. He says, our ecosystem of interruption technologies affects our spiritual and moral lives in every aspect. By our immersion in that ecosystem, we are radically impeded from achieving a right understanding of ourselves and of God's disposition toward us. He goes on in the article to say this. He says, we will not understand ourselves as sinners or as people made in God's image or as people spiritually endangered by walking far from God or as people made to live in communion with God or as people of whom God has come to a far country in order to seek and save if we cannot cease for a few moments from an endless procession of stimuli that shock us out of thought. We will not have a right understanding of ourselves or of how God thinks about us if we cannot cease for a few moments from the endless procession of stimuli that shocks us out of thought. You see, the God of the universe, he wants to speak peace to your life. Just as he spoke the planets into existence, but how do we regain the ability to listen? Yes, by silencing with that solitude, but do you know how to be alone with yourself? Alone with God to actually take a day off weekly where you're not constantly checking email or on your phone prayer, reading the scriptures, memorizing his word. That's why we, we printed off these, these cards um, 
and they have a, a, a memory verse for each week of Advent that comes from one of the Psalms that we're looking at. It's short, they're easy, uh, uh, but a tool to help us listen. So you can grab one of these on the name tag table if you haven't, and I'd encourage you, just spend some time with these verses. It also means that we quiet our lives enough to hear peace and also to speak it to others. We can actually be the voice of God speaking peace into each other's lives as we remind one another of the scriptures, as we speak wisdom to one another, as we sing songs that proclaim truth over one another. We can actually speak that peace of God to one another. Instead, though, all too often we speak fear and anger, disappointment and condemnation into one another's lives. Will you speak peace to your children, to your church family, to your neighbors, to Facebook? And will you hear it? Who are those people for you in your life who are speaking peace, reminding you that God is speaking peace to you? Listening means silencing. Second, listening also means fearing. Fearing. Now, fearing, that might sound a little out of place in a conversation about peace, but it's vital. Because listen again to what the psalmist writes in verses 8 and 9. These are the core verses of the psalm. It says, Let me hear what the Lord God will speak, for he speaks peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. When we hear the language of fear, we tend to think of being terrified of God's punishment or his wrath. But we know that in Jesus, those things have been dealt with. And we saw that back in verses 2 and 3. There is forgiveness of sins. The iniquity is covered. God's wrath is turned away. And here, fearing is linked with salvation, with rescue. So fearing here can't mean being afraid of God's punishment. It, it must mean something else. And it does, and in fact, in, in most times in the Bible, uses the language of fear in relation to, to God. It's speaking about a kind of way that God's people relate to him, to enjoy a relationship with him. It's a reverential awe that respects God's boundaries, that acknowledges the relationship of creator and creature. Because if you, if you try to play football outside of the bounds the boundaries of the game, you're going to frustrate yourself. And the same is true with life even more so. And the ultimate boundary in life is the boundary between creature and creator that fearing God recognizes that he has established the world to work in a certain way and that when we go outside of those parameters that we shouldn't be surprised when things begin to fall apart. So fear God because this fear brings peace. Let us not return to folly, the psalmist says. I'm sure not a lot of us go around using the language of folly. Um, but folly in the Bible basically just means moral stupidity. Stop running away from God. Stop ignoring his good design for life. If you're constantly running from him, you can't expect to hear his voice. Could it be that it, our sin is what's clogging our ears from hearing that voice of peace. And that's why so much of this psalm is confession and repentance and forgiveness. 
That's why so much of the Psalter as a whole, all of the Psalms touch on those themes of confession and repentance and forgiveness. We're all sinners and daily we need to reorder our lives to listening. Listening means silencing, listening means fearing, and finally listening means anticipating, delighting in, longing for, gaining hope from what God has done and what he will do. This is what we do during Advent. We remember what God has done in the past, in the first coming of Jesus, but also anticipate, long for Jesus' return and all that he's going to do when he comes and making things new. <clears throat> and at the end of the psalm, we get a, a, just a glimpse, a tiny peek at what it looks like when peace, shalom, comprehensive flourishing comes to the world. You see, we turned away from God when we did that. The whole of creation, not just us as humans, but the whole of creation was tossed into bondage and decay. But the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 tells us, tells us this, that with the writing of humanity's relationship with God, the whole of creation will be restored. Listen to what he writes. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. That's what the final verses of Psalm 85 give us a glimpse of, that freedom from death and decay. Listen to them. I mean, really listen to them. If you're taking notes or shopping on Amazon or looking at Instagram, I've listened to sermons before. I know what happens, right? Just pause right now for one second to listen. Set down your pen, set down your phone, and get ready to listen. To listen to what a world of peace sounds like. I'm going to give you 15 seconds just of total silence. And then I'm going to read the final verses of this psalm. Listen to them. Hear God speaking peace to you. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. God is speaking peace to you, but you have to trust him for it. Have you? Do you? I know that you long for peace, and so do I, and only he can speak peace to your troubled soul. Only he can calm the chaos, so why not let him? 
Give your life to him. Confess your sins. Listen for him. For our God came to speak peace, not just from heaven, but in person. In that major long ago, God became man, joining us in suffering. He comes to a world without peace. He knows it. He's been here. And never has the world heard a louder whisper and steadfast love in me more profoundly than as Jesus hung on a cross suffering for my sins and for yours, offering us goodness and forgiveness, peace with a God that I do not rightly fear. Righteousness and peace kiss each other on the cross. And as Jesus rose up from the ground, victorious over sin and death and hell, faithfulness springs up from the ground. And he reigns even now, planning to return, making all things right. Righteousness looks down from the sky. You see, friends, that the only thing, only God can speak peace to the chaos inside of us. For he is the prince of peace. Are you listening? Are you listening? Let's pray. Father, I simply pray this morning that you would, by a work of your grace and the power of your spirit, allow us to let go of the distractions long enough to hear you speak peace into our lives. Allow us to feel that yawning empty, forever empty. And then hear your word of peace and restoration and relationship and forgiveness and joy and fullness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.